Hello and welcome to episode 88 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. It's been a while since the last episode, I know, but in the intervening weeks, month and a half maybe, I have been working behind the scenes on a couple of episodes and one or two upcoming as well. I have a couple in the can, the first of which is this. So recently, two weeks ago, I spoke to my friend and filmmaker Damien Collodi about an upcoming project of his which focuses on the band Riot, or Riot 5 as they're now known. Damien has been working on this documentary since September 2022, and I first met him at Keep It True Rising that year in Germany, where he approached me because I was wearing a Riot t-shirt and asked me if I'd like to participate in an interview for this documentary. Ever since then, we've kept in touch, and he sent me drafts of various different parts of the documentary as they have been edited and put together. It's kind of changed over the last year, and he's put an estimated 500 hours worth of work into this. And I can say, even though I've seen it, I've seen it all, but I've seen it out of sequence, it is a fantastic piece of work. If you've never heard of the band Riot or Riot 5, or you aren't familiar with them, it's a great introduction to the band and it covers their entire history. If you are a fan, it goes deep into all of the machinations and various different lineup changes and changes in musical style as well over the years. And if there's one thing you can say about Riot is that they have changed their musical style multiple times across the years, starting with a kind of a hard rock sound in the late 70s, morphing into more of a power metal sound in the 80s, going into a more of a bluesy rock kind of sound in the 90s and reverting back to that power metal sound again in the 2010s. And this story really focuses on Mark Reale. So he was the visionary behind Riot. He was the constant member throughout all of their lineups until his unfortunate death in 2012. Anyway, Damien is here to discuss this documentary, discuss a bit about the history of the band Riot and to whet your appetite for what is essentially a four-hour documentary that's going to be released in four parts, one on each Saturday in January. So keep an eye out for that. I'll be giving you further updates on a later episode as well. And yeah, I'm just going to launch straight into the interview I had with Damien a couple of weeks ago. I hope you enjoy it. So I'm here with Damien Collodi, filmmaker and documentary-er. Uh, I don't know what you call that type of person, but he's making a documentary about the band Riot. And you might have seen me post something on Facebook or Twitter recently because he has a trailer that's out. But the documentary isn't going to be released until January 2024 and it's going to be in four parts. Uh, so welcome, Damien, to Feckin' Metal. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been listening to your shows since we met last year. Keep it true rising. And uh, I really like enjoy these in-depth dives. So I'm glad I caught your attention. <laughs> <laughs> well actually yeah so i think it was last year um and i was wearing a riot t-shirt and it seems strange to say it was only last year because it seems like i've known you for a lot longer than that but it was uh what september october 2022 and we were at keep it true rising and i think on the first day anyway i was wearing a riot t-shirt and you approached me and asked me you know about my background with riot and stuff like that and then we filmed an actual interview the next day because i know i'm wearing different clothes in the two different bits of footage you have there in your uh, in your documentary yeah you were actually the first person i think i uh, i talked to on cam like i interviewed on camera and i wasn't fully sure at that point you know like if how much i was going to film that weekend or if it was going to turn into anything uh but then like mm. uh we had a good conversation and they're like oh that guy's got a riot pass go talk to him and then i did and then like sort of you know he introduced me to other riot people and it you know it sort of was a chain reaction from there so i'm like all right let, let's keep going <laughs> 
Brilliant. So we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about the documentary, of course, and the last year or so that you've been putting it together. And I know you've put a whole lot of work into it, and I've seen it in various stages. And I actually finished watching part three there just before chatting to you. And you were right. I think that is the best part. Um, but before we get to all that, so I met you at a heavy metal festival. So you're obviously a fan of rock and metal. And I wanted to ask you, like growing up, who, who was the first band you got into or how did you get into heavy metal? Um, and what were some of the kind of bands you liked before you discovered Riot? Well, I, uh, I grew up in the eight, I was a kid in the eighties, but in the eighties, I wasn't really into heavy metal. Uh, I probably, you know, like started first getting into like the heavier stuff with guns and roses. And it, it was, a right. little, yeah, it was probably like some of the songs from appetite, but then really like illusion albums came out in like 91. Uh, also iron maiden around there, the fear of the dark album. That's what I really started getting into sort of heavier, more aggressive sounding music. So it was, it, and I, at the time I sort of felt like, wow, I, I really missed like the wave of heavy metal as, as I started digging into like all the stuff that came out into the, in the eighties. So I was yeah. like, I'm late to the game. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Guns N' Roses would have been a huge one for me as well. Definitely one of the earliest uh, heavy bands I listened to. And I remember clearly when I was young, very young, like, so I'm about 10 years younger than you, but I remember watching um, the, the videos for November Rain and Knocking on Heaven's Door on MTV when I was about six or seven. And I remember my sister very specifically sitting me down and going, this is Guns N' Roses. And I knew like that that was important at the time. Like, as in, this is a, a good band or a band you should like, or you, you like this kind of thing. Uh, but then I didn't really revisit them then for maybe 10 years. Well, it wouldn't be 10 years, maybe seven years or so until I was like a teenager. Um, and my friend actually was making me a tape of Bleach by Nirvana. And I asked him, because I knew he had all of the albums. I was like, could you put Guns N' Roses on the other side? Never listened to Bleach. Only listened to Guns N' Roses, really. Um, and then it was just a love affair then. Like, they, up there with Iron Maiden, for me, I'd say they're my favorite band, pretty much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they were definitely instrumental. Um, I guess I was discovering all that, you know, for me, it was like metal and grunge. I was discovering it all at the same time. So I didn't, ha I didn't have, yeah. like, this shift, like, oh, you know, now I'm into grunge. You know, I, I liked it all. Punk metal grunge you know i just like absorbed it all and wasn't in, into like getting too stuck in which category things were yeah i, I would have been the same like so actually I'm, I'm exaggerating saying i never listened to bleach i did listen to it, but I, I really loved guns and roses um but I, obviously i had Nevermind and in utero and all that but um I really loved Guns N' Roses. They really struck a chord with me. And at the same time, though, like when I was that age in my teens, um, there was a lot of indie stuff out as well. Like, and me and my friends would go to festivals, and it would be the likes of Coldplay and Snow Patrol and uh, the Killers and those types of bands. So I was also into all that. And actually, you'll you'll, pr you'll probably have met some of my friends that keep it true this year. And like some of them would be staunchly um, heavy metal. Like you know, they would pretty much only like metal or maybe metal and Irish trad music. <laughs> And uh, they were all taking the piss out of one of the lads in the group there on a group chat, a Facebook group chat. And they were like, oh, you probably like the Killers or you probably like Coldplay or blah, blah, blah. And after they'd kind of run through all those bands, I was just like, I like all of those bands that are being used as mocking devices. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but but I listened to all that as well as, as heavy metal. And I think like it's, to me, I find it unusual when people don't like anything else other than metal because like there has to be some kind of um, getting, like you have to get there somehow. The, the first album you put on isn't going to be slayer like you know there has to be some path there 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing leads to another, you know, for, for me, there was, a. I think Beavis and Butthead was <clears throat> played a big role in in introducing me to some new oh, yeah. new metal bands that I hadn't heard of, and uh, and where I I would grew up in New Jersey, right outside New York City, and there was a college radio station from Seton Hall University, WSOU, and they were a metal station uh, all the time, twenty four hours a day, and they were like yeah, the, one of the you know the biggest in the country, won all these awards, pretty well known at the time. Um, they started the metal format, I think, in 86. So that was, you know, something I didn't have that many friends that listened. My friends were, you know, weren't really into that music, but I had that radio station and to sort of uh, listen to in the evening and hear new bands and and things like that. Yeah, from a lot of people I've spoken to, actually, radio seems to have been a huge, hugely important kind of factor in how their their musical taste developed. Unfortunately, we didn't really have anything like that over here in Ireland. Uh, I don't remember any specific radio station that played heavy metal or even hard rock. It was just kind of, well, maybe there was one called Phantom, but like it still wouldn't have been the types of stuff that you or I would listen to. But um, radio seems to be a huge factor. Um, I was going to ask you, though, so we were talking about like paths into heavy metal before metal what kind of stuff like what did you get into music at an early age well I, I grew up on all the 80s music you know sort of uh you know all the 80s hits phil collins uh you know madonna like like all that stuff you know i was a kid when mm. when that was on the radio um so i grew up listening to that my, my dad was really into doo-wop um so he listened he listened okay. to the oldies channel a lot so i also got a, got a good dose of of you know 50s 60s doo-wop music growing up as well good yeah some of that's quite good um okay and then where you were saying you're grown up in new jersey so did many metal bands come through new jersey back in the 1990s uh yeah th- there you know there was the different scenes in different parts of jersey um you know you had that scene in old bridge which is where the metal militia and metallica first gather around metallica um megaforce records was based out of jersey you know overkill Mm. i mean you had you you know you had a lot of bands in that tri-state area at the time when i was in high school uh i had a friend who was in a hardcore band called bulldoze and there was this hardcore scene uh around studio one in newark and then you know you could always go to the city and go to like cbgb or the continental or oh yeah coney island high Lemores was still going on in Brooklyn, but for me that was a little far at the time to get to on on my own, being a teenager. <laughs> um, hmm. yeah, but Lemores, you always used to hear about the shows happening at Lemores. It's a legendary New York City heavy metal club where you know everyone has played at some point or other in the eighties and nineties. Um, so there was a pretty vibrant scene, you know, in the sort of New Jersey, New York area, and. Being where I was, you can you can hmm. go to both. You know, you can you can get some shows in the city, like at the Roseland. I saw some of my first shows, which was closed a couple of years ago. But um, it, you know, but it, there was stuff going on, for sure. Very good. So we're here to talk, of course, about your upcoming Riot documentary. But before we get to that, I'd like to ask you, what's your background in filmmaking? So is this a first for you or have you dabbled in making other sorts of uh, documentaries or films prior to deciding to make one about Riot? Um, I, I I have. I've probably done more than dabbled. I went to film school uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, Emerson College. 
Um, and after, you know, there I did some narrative type films, some sci-fi fantasy stuff, um, more, but after graduating, I, I, you know, started freelancing and doing more documentary type work because it was just more accessible. Um, you didn't need to gather money and people, you could just sort of pick up a camera and and go. Mm. And so that, that attracted me to doing that kind of filmmaking. Um, and I'd done a 9-11 documentary, which was probably my first one, just filming people in the parks in Manhattan after September 11th happened. And um, in 2004, I went to Ukraine, which is sort of my ancestral homeland, I guess you could say, where my grandparents are from. And I um, filmed something called the Orange Revolution, was a, which was a massive demonstration against the falsified elections. And that turned into my first featured film documentary, which was in festivals and as a distributor. And, you know, it's on Amazon and iTunes. Very good. And then 10 years later, I did uh, a sequel to that about the another uprising, Maidan, Euromaidan uprising in, in Kiev, Ukraine, um, which also played in some film festivals and things like this. So, you know, they were pretty um, serious topics, I'd say. Yeah. But, but in between the two, I created a web series called NYC Rocks TV. Um, and the idea was to just sort of uh, follow local characters from the rock and roll and heavy metal scene in, in, that I was hanging out in, in, in New York City, you know, based mostly in, around the East Village or around a particular bar called Three of Cups. And it, it wasn't just about musicians, it was just different personalities. And the idea was to show. Hey, there's still cool things going on now. Um, you know, people were always lamenting, oh, the good old days of CBGBs, you know, it's closed, everything sucks, sucks. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like those were great, but there's still cool shit going on. Like, let, let's like highlight some of that. So that was like the general idea. And I put out two seasons of that. Um, and it was cool as well. It was pretty well received within the local community. Uh, and those episodes are are still up on my you know YouTube channel. And were people receptive to that? You know, the people from the local scene. How did they uh, find being filmed, or you know, you wanting to feature them in kind of documentary style um, programming or whatever you would call it? Well, they they really enjoyed it because you know, every, I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's you know trying to do something to get more exposure. So you know, people uh, you know probably saw it as a way to you know, leverage whatever they were doing, whatever music they were doing or, or whatever. But it was just fun seeing, um, you know, familiar faces from the scene. I would have uh, screenings at the bar every Sunday night when I was uh, uh, premiering a new episode. So like the premiere would actually be in the bar, like we'd have a projector and people gather around and watch it. And then and then I'd go online uh, and, and release it up on the YouTube channel. So, it was you know, it was a cool sort of... Um, community oriented uh you know documentary series yeah it was fun brilliant so you talked about you did a 9-11 documentary um another one's about political corruption in ukraine then you moved over towards kind of rock music um did that spark something off in you then where you're like i need to make a rock documentary or did that just kind of happen by circumstance when you discovered the band riot yeah well no i i um I, there was a band that I focused on in the second season of my NYC Rocks TV called Pansy. And they were just great music, sort of like this street rock, really great characters, you know, 
great guys, uh, just very interesting. And uh, and so I sort of did a bunch of episodes on, on them. And then out of those episodes, I actually made um, like a one hour film, which I, I never really properly released. But, um, you know, so I, I had done that. And then after doing that, after doing the second Ukraine documentary, I decided to revisit some of this footage I had from a, a club called Don Hills Club, which was in the West Village. And they had had a, a once a month party called Bitch, a ladies tribute to metal. And it went on for some years. It was a house band playing rock and metal metal covers. And they the idea was that for every song, they had a different woman singer singing. This this featured in part three of the riot documentary. Uh, it it was mentioned in part three because there were because I feel like I just watched that. Yeah, there was <laughs> there was a crossover moment because Frank Gilchrist played in the house band for the bitch band mm. at some point, and mm. Riot had played in Don Hill's club, um, you know, at during that time. So so I wanted to to highlight that intersection because I I ended up making a, a one hour film about this bitch ladies tribute to metal monthly party at don hills um which which was a my favorite sort of event for those years it was just a whole lot of fun and and a lot of talented women and the band was amazing so you get to hear like all your favorite songs you know made in black sabbath pantera just played live and Mm. sung by these kick-ass you know rocker chicks It it was awesome yeah 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 brilliant uh, yeah, it looked good from the, the small bit of footage you had in the documentary. Um, so then we get to the point where you find out about Riot. And for somebody who was active in the heavy metal scene in New York, New Jersey, growing up actively a fan of that music, you found yourself surprised that you had never heard of Riot. So what happened and, and how did those pieces fall into place? Yeah, I, I, I'd never heard of Riot growing up. I, I have a, a friend who's into, you know, some of the more obscure classic metal stuff and and he had mentioned their name to me and you know like amongst many other bands that he had mentioned to me and i'm like okay someday i'll have to check that out um but i I had never so i'd heard the name maybe but i never really like listened to their music and it was only until like last year beginning of 2022 where i read this article in in louder magazine uh, called you know the unluckiest riot the unluckiest band in the world uh, yeah, I've yeah, read it, yeah, it was a pretty in-depth piece and it had like samples of their music. And I was just like, wow, this is an amazing story. And then I started like listening to some of the tunes that the, the songs that they had there, you know, from the classic Riot Air with Guy. And I'm like, wow, this has a really great sound. It's just like this sort of like, you know, pure like rock and roll sort of metal, like very aggressive, but melodic, which is, you know, sort of the, the kind of stuff that I like um mm. and i started digging into them and and just discovering like more about them and and their music and then reading about them and being like oh well then they did this you know they had this classic era and then they did this thundersteel where they redefine themselves as power metal and i'm like i was listening to halloween you know like that was one of my favorite bands how do I, how do i not know like i've not heard about yeah, this this yeah. is so this is really weird like what and and I would ask I my friends, yeah. like, do you guys know Riot? Oh, do you, you mean Quiet Riot? Like, no, no, just just Riot. <laughs> and like mo- most people yeah. don't know them. Like, and uh, I was just like, what? what is going on? Like, why, how is this band 
like not how did i not know how do most people i know not know about them and it it was really like you know made made the whole thing more interesting for me like but they should have been known sure yes definitely and actually it's there's obviously we spoke earlier that you you did interview for me me for the documentary and there's a part where you asked me when I discovered them and it was very similar it would have been 2019 and I was at the Sabaton Open Air and in advance of going to the festival I was listening to the bands who were going to be playing but I do realise now that I actually had listened to Thunder Steel uh, a couple of years before because I have a Spotify playlist on my Spotify account which is like the uh I think it was like new wave of American heavy metal or something. And I think I said something to that effect when, when we were chatting at Keep It True. So it was in there somewhere, but I really, I didn't really know them. Like, um, certainly didn't know them well. And I might have listened to that because I read it in a magazine or an online article or something and then kind of just passed over it and, you know, you know, went about my way, like, and just kind of forgot about them. So to me, it's a very similar story, like into rock music, into heavy metal for years, for two decades. But they just kind of slipped under the radar for me as well. Yeah, it was really bizarre, and it, it it was one of the, I guess, motivating factors for me to discover them, and ultimately to to want to do something to be like, wow, this is just an amazing band, amazing story, and there's all these different pieces of, you know, the puzzle that is the riot story, <laughs> you know, over the course of forty years that like, you know, could be interesting to put that all together somehow. Yeah. They, they very much got a kind of a story that mirrors the likes of Black Sabbath, I'd say, or Deep Purple, where there are distinct eras uh, where they changed their sound and changed their singer frequently as well. Um, and like people like this era, but they don't like that era or people like the early stuff, but they don't consider the later stuff actual riot, etc. And those bands to me are always the most fascinating. Um, and I was going to ask you, at what point then, you know, when you had this information, you'd read the article, uh, you were listening to them, you found them interesting. At what point did you just say, right, I'm going to make a documentary about this? Well, you know, initially there, there's um, uh, Stephen Blush, who is in, in the film uh, as sort of like a historian, a rock historian. He's written a book called New York Rock. Yeah. And he was in the bitch movie. He was uh, the promoter of the bit, bitch, a lady's tribute to metal sh- show. So, he, so, you know, I've known Steve for some years and um he had mentioned like, oh, you should do a documentary about that. And I'm like, you know, mm. like I totally would be into it, but, you know, there's already a film out there, you know, like the Metal Voice had had done a really in-depth film called Fight or Fall, yeah. um, which was uh, also one of the, the things I checked out, you know, that informed me about like a, a lot of the nuances of the band's history and mm. especially, you know, like uh, with their on the behind the scenes with the management side. Um, so I, I sort of was like, okay, well, uh, I don't really want to make a film on something that's already, the film's already been made, made on. So uh, I sort of hesitated on that for, for some time, you know, I sort of put it on the back burner, but as I still kept exploring, right, I still kept finding pieces of various media or information and sort of archiving it and downloading it, like almost like. I want to, I want to have the, you know, I want to <laughs> have this and, and store it. Mm. So I, I had been, you know, various clips or, or different interviews, you know, like, like finding some stuff with DeMeo and, yeah. and, diff- and just downloading it. And I, so I've already like over the time started assembling this archive. And then 
I don't know, at some point, like it just, the, the idea just wouldn't leave me alone. And I'm like, all right, I have to get this out of my system. You know, I'll do something different. You know, they're, they're going to be playing a keep it true festival in Germany. It's close to me. I'll try to, you know, tell the story from a European angle, mm. you know, it'll be something different than, than what those guys did. I have some other things I think I can focus on that, you know, maybe they didn't in the film, uh, you know, and I, I really tried to think like, okay, I can make something that can complement that film. I mean, obviously there would be some overlap, but you know, like may, maybe come at it from a different perspective and, and use some materials that, that they hadn't used and, and, and mm. make a mini documentary. Um, mm, not so many anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I thought I'd, I would just film, you know, some interviews that keep it true and make a little mini doc and see how it goes. So actually to me, so listening to you there, I, I can kind of relate in a small way in that you're like, Oh, it's already been done. Um, so what do I have to kind of contribute? But I think like, you can add to something uh, without copying the thing that already exists. So like I did a, a series within Feckin' Metal on Black Sabbath and I was actually inspired by an excellent podcast about Black Sabbath called Sabbath Bloody Podcast. But I was kind of similar to you in that I was like, this person, Rye, did this fantastic podcast, went chronologically through Black Sabbath's albums. Each episode was dedicated to one album and he talked about everything from around that time. And I kind of borrowed liberally from him, but at the same time, my thing was, I'm going to speak to people. I'm not going to narrate this myself. Well, I did narrate it, but the main body of the episodes was other people's opinions and other people's thoughts on Black Sabbath. And to me, that was like, I'm adding to what's already out there. I'm not copying from someone else. And I think the best probably feature of your documentary is a lot of that footage you captured to keep it true because there was so much to that like uh people's kind of pop up again and again as you watch the various different parts but um you really got some fantastic interviews from people who just happened to be going to keep it true and it really sets it apart from anything else that's out there i think yeah yeah and i guess i guess that was you know the idea is uh, keep it true was a cool place to do it because um you know the people who go there are, are sort of pretty serious, take their metal pretty seriously. So they're pretty, uh, you know, well-versed uh, in, in what they like and, and why they like it. Mm. Um, and, and there were people from different parts of the world there too. So, mm. you know, you get it, you get a sample of people from, from a lot of different geographic areas and, and also um, different age ranges, you know, like, like a lot of times, like, um, I feel like in America, the people who know Riot are the people who grew up with them in their classic era, you know, who in mm. the 80s and, um, you know, there's not so many younger people that know them. But here in Europe, you know, it was different. You had you had younger people who were who were getting into them and Riot 5 and, and rediscovering the old music. So I thought that was also interesting. And that became a component of the documentary as well. I thought, yeah. Yeah. And you actually, you spoke to a friend of mine, Paddy, who I think probably would have only been 27 at the time um, and wouldn't have even been born when Thunderseal came out or anything like that. So it was a great cross section of um, uh, ages, as you said, and, and different backgrounds and perspectives, I think, as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it was, um, you know, I had an idea of the questions I want to ask about different topics and things like that. Uh, and then... Um, you know, I tried to organize that somehow in the edit uh, and mix it up with, 
you know, other footage I did, you know, the, the, the project grew as I did interviews with uh, Mike Flint's first and then Don Van Stavern. Um, and then I got access to more of the riot archives uh, through the help of, of Giles Lavery, who, who also did the Fight or Fall film. And, and he had put together those riot archive uh, box sets that were put out. Um, so he was very generous and, and saying like, Hey man, like, yeah, like, you know, see what you can do with this, uh, material. So, so all of a sudden I had a lot more to try to work into like the stuff that I had filmed and, and that became a much bigger challenge, yeah. an exciting challenge for sure. Well, it certainly grew anyway, from, I think what you initially sent me, um, a few months I'd say a couple of months after we met, he sent me something like it was a, a, a cut or a take. And then all of a sudden now it's kind of four parts, which are an hour or more in length. But um, I was going to say there's a lot of components to it. So as you mentioned, there's archival footage, there's live footage. There are interviews you conduct that keep it true. There are standalone interviews with the band members, like you said. Um, Like as this grew... Did you still have a kind of creative vision in your mind of where you wanted it to go? Or be just going, right, I'm just going to gather all of this and I'll see how it fits together. Um, I mean, the vision, the vision changed. Initially, I didn't really plan on having like the chronology. I thought it would be interesting to jump around from the different eras without like staying chronological. Um, because that's sort of how I discovered the band myself. I didn't, I didn't know about them, you know, growing up or as the albums were released, I discovered like their whole discography is sort of like at one moment in time. So I would discover, you know, I would jump around from different points in time. Uh, and I thought that would be a cool way to do it. But, but as I got more footage and the project expanded, um, it just became too confusing to do that. And I realized I, I had the ability to tell the story chronologically also with the footage that I had. And so I had to re restructure it and break it up into different parts as it grew bigger. Um, and that took some time. And, and that also, you know, I, I needed outside perspectives and that's why I sent it to people such as yourself and, and some other people who, you know, I had interviewed or, or whose opinion I wanted to get just to get some, some feedback because, um, you know, you need you need some outside voices. You start getting into it day in, day out, at weeks, turn into months, and you lose perspective on it. So, so you know, it's good to get another set of eyes to say like, oh, th this seems long. This isn't working. What about putting that there? And, and that, you know, that's part of the process. Always been for me. And um, so you you mentioned earlier that you studied uh, film. What was it, film studies in yeah. in college? Yeah. And I'm guessing that was probably about maybe probably close to 30 years ago now. Or, or somewhere <laughs> it was the late, late 90s. So, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Late, late I graduated 90s, okay. So yeah. we're talking maybe 25 years ago or so. And I would assume that the type of video editing software that we have now didn't exist back then. So how have you been able to kind of keep abreast of the technological advances that are obviously kind of, you know, you're going to require some of that type of software to do what you've done, which is piece together a million pieces of footage. Have you just kind of kept that up as a, as a hobby or pastime, or was that just naturally kind of something you had to keep on top of when you were making your previous films and things like that? Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I worked as a freelance video cameraman and editor uh, for the whole time I lived in New York before I moved to Germany. <clears throat> so that, you know, that was the industry I was in. 
Um, I mean, we, you know, I'm a Mac guy, so we used uh, Final Cut Pro for many years. And then when Apple sort of discontinued the Pro version, uh, you know, people switched to Adobe Premiere. So there was a bit of a learning curve there. Um, but, you know, the the concepts of nonlinear editing have largely stayed the same. It's just about how do you, you know, add the bells and whistles and things like that. I mean, I'm not a graphic designer. I'm, I'm not like a compositor, you know, who's going to make stuff. But um, I know how to take some, you know, things and lay them together within within the, this workspace that is Adobe Premiere, which is which is what I use now. Um, so, you know, like adding some animated texts, for instance, or adding some like light flares and things like that, which I started to do to to dress up some of that old archival footage um, because it's, uh, it's standard definition, a lot of it, you know, so there's a lot of different uh, resolutions, you know, like the older resolution stuff, which which isn't quite that sharp. It doesn't match like the stuff that I shot at Keep It True, which, which I shot on my iPhone, but it looks super sharp. You know, the cameras they have these days is, is quite incredible. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I've sort of through just keeping doing it, you you stay up to date with with that kind of stuff. I mean, with documentary, you're, you know, you don't, it's not like you're doing a sci-fi film where you have to like, create green screens and do all these, this crazy stuff that, that we're, you know, technology has really advanced documentaries, you know, you can cut. It's just about managing the project, you know, especially as it gets to a bigger, bigger level, like, like it has in my case. So how many hours? So you started working on this, let's say just prior to keep it true rising 2022, which is just over a year ago now, maybe, 12 or 13 months or 13 months ago maybe and um you've been working on it since then would would you have any idea how many hours you've put into this i mean it's hard to say in the beginning the first couple months i was working on it a lot because i (laughs) i didn't have a job at the time that 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 was one reason i started you know okay like i held i had held off doing this project or starting a documentary because I thought I would be a Ukrainian English translator at a U.S. Army base here in Germany where they were training Ukrainian soldiers. I'd been accepted for this position by the company that provides the translation services, but the U.S. Army required a security clearance for Americans. They told me that you know they would do this background check on me, and it ended up taking six months. So I had I had left my job, so I had this time, and I needed something to do productive to be productive in. A lot of skeletons in the closet there, are there? <laughs> in in the end, I I passed the background check, but the U.S. Army said it wasn't enough. So, um, right, I I didn't end up getting job, and I just put more time into into this film. Um, but how many hours? You know, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Hundreds, hundreds of hours for sure. How many hundreds? It's hard to know. You know, you work you work on and off a couple, you know, yeah, you know, maybe 500 hours or more. But it, it but it's 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 very enjoyable. And for me, it was, um, you know, my wife's from Ukraine and given what's going on and all this like sort of bad news, you know, it was something to take my mind off that and very therapeutic in a way to just, you know, seeing how this documentary is coming alive um coming together and you're seeing you know your the music is cool and and how everything's starting to fit into place you know like there's sometimes it feels like the unit you're working 
as just like the creative force of the universe is guiding you. I don't know how else to say, but it sort of felt like that, like I needed a piece and, and somehow it would find its way to me. And it was just a really exciting, like satisfying feeling of, of crafting and sculpting this piece. So, you know, I wanted to keep doing, I could have probably finished it some time ago, but I wanted to keep, keep working on it. (laughs) I wanted to make it better and better and tighten it and add this and add that. And yeah. Yeah, I can see. I can see what you mean. Yeah. So you've obviously got a lot of um, interview footage with uh, actual members of Riot or Riot Five, as they are called now. Um, so you've got Donny Van Stavern, you've got Mike Flint. Uh, you've spoken to other members as well who have been involved. Um, so how has that process been, and and how did you get introduced to all these people? Um, well, initially, I just reached out to Mike Flint, um, and he he yeah. So so he's probably the longest tenured member. Other than Mark Reali, I would imagine just watching your part three there, I, like he was there basically from Thundersteel, which was '88 until today, it, with no. Break. Yeah, he came on like that. He wasn't, you know, part of the recording of, of Thundersteel, but he came on the Japanese tour, mm. and um, so he was part of their touring band since '89, and then he, I guess he he came into the studio uh, on the Nightbreaker album, and I guess that was '92. Yeah. So, so yes, he, he is the longest, you know, consistent member since, since, you know, basically 89 till now. So sorry, you, you reached out to him or did somebody put you in touch with him? Did you say, sorry? Uh, no, I, I reached out to him initially on Facebook. I, I hit, you know, I had reached out to him at, at one point in time, just saying like, Hey, like what you guys are doing is awesome. <laughs> really cool. I appreciate it. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> and and, and then uh you know like uh yeah i reached out to him again and and told him that i was thinking about um filming at the keep it true in in germany and and this and that and um you know we we had talked about maybe trying to meet at keep it true uh but it it didn't happen you know they had a tight schedule but I, Mm. i ended up you know, chatting with him once on the phone, or was, I think maybe it was a video call that we did, and just sort of introducing myself, before, you know, telling him about the project and what I wanted to do and, and things mm. like that. And, um, you know, he was very supportive and enthusiastic about that. Yeah. And, and uh, appreciative. Um, he, he, he's a, you know, very sort of a humble guy and uh, just very, uh, uh, I guess easy, easy person to communicate with. Um, yeah, he certainly comes across that way in the film. Yeah, yeah. So after after that, we we set up a Zoom to do an interview because we didn't connect to keep it true, and we we had that interview that you see in the film. Yeah, uh, which which was a pretty long chat, and you know, and obviously he's like, you you got to talk to Donnie because he's really the other like key part in in you know, the riot five continuing the legacy story. And I'm like, of course I definitely need to talk to Donnie. Donnie's the missing link for me between like the old riot and the new riot, you know, like that mm. he, he is like, you know, he played with the Rhett Forrester and Sandy Slavin lineup and then transitioned into the Thundersteel lineup with Mark. So, so. That- yeah. So he came in 86 lasted for a couple of albums and then got really frustrated basically with the what was the money situation or just the lack of kind of progress or something but then kind of returned in 2008 to kind of um 
like, well, basically, like to to record the last couple of albums they did with Mark Reale. Yeah, the last album they did, Immortal Maybe Soul. Just, they're just the last one, actually, Immortal yeah. Soul. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he left just like a lot of the other guys did before him and after him, which was because the band wasn't getting any money. the The managers, the management, what you know, was everyone felt was uh, not treating the band fairly. You know, to put it succinctly, and and you know they weren't making like a living wage and and they were playing some some big shows and uh you know ultimately like you know and he talks about it in, in the documentary that he's just like you know like this this is bullshit i'm out you know i can mm. and and he's not the only one you know who who reacted that way no well there, there were a few instances of that over the years so so sorry mike put you in touch with donny and then you also spoke to some more uh, members of Riot as well. So it was kind of just a domino effect of like, well, I've spoken to this person now; they can put me in touch with that well, person. Well, Mike and Donnie were were the the main interviews I had for some time, and um, doing those really expanded the film. And I uh, and I was hesitant to try to film everyone in the band because I didn't know how I would use those interviews, and I was afraid of it getting too big and it had it already become bigger mm. than i anticipated cumbersome almost like you know when you have to fit stuff in yeah yeah so so i i, I was wary to try to interview more people um in, in the beginning of the summer i did end up also interviewing frank gilchrist because i needed i you know one of one of the things i had going on uh, in the last chapter with riot five was how uh, Mark served as a mentor for everyone and and like a teacher. And mm. Frank had spent some time with Mark and I really wanted to get that point across that, you know, like Frank had also mm. been uh, involved, even though he wasn't part of that Immortal Soul Thundersteel reunion, but previously he had been involved with Riot and played with Mark and, and also had a close relationship with Mark. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, Don and and Mike. And um, so, you know, like through Mike, uh, I got in touch with Frank uh, and we also did an interview with Frank that, you know, was a great conversation. So I ended up using more of that interview uh, throughout throughout Mm. different pieces of, of of the documentary as well. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's other interviews that are archivals um, that I didn't film, you know, so Mm. so there's. Stuff yeah, that, there's one with L.A. Cavaris, I think. You, you'd have some snippets in there. Yeah, that. so there's interviews with Lou. There's interviews with Peter Batelli that other people did. Yeah. Um, and these were, you know, interviews that were done uh, before the Fight or Fall film came out. So I thought that, that was pretty cool because they were sort of, they hadn't really talked about Riot at that point in time for, for years. Mm. And I thought these were cool interviews to have. They are both audio interviews yeah um and i got permission to use them in the film and and i think they offered a lot of insight especially into those early years uh so there was that you know that mike DeMeo had some interviews that were done and and mark also um in the 90s through metal express radio yeah um so those i also got permission to use um and you know there were diff- there was the the stuff on Japanese TV. Yes, quite a lot of that actually. It's 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 funny to me how big they were in Japan or how seemingly big they were. Like I know it's kind of a joke, like oh I'm big in Japan, um but like it's like 
Japan seems to latch onto bands, I think, in, in a way that maybe no other country does. Like, and there'll be like bands like Deep Purple or uh, I don't know, lots of other bands who are just like randomly just huge in Japan. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's randomly. I mean, they're Japanese uh, relationship to Japan. Sorry, not randomly, but like it just, I don't know. Like it's its its so far removed from Western culture, but yes, they seem to love <laughs> a bit of American or British rock and roll. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I've never been to Japan, so it's hard for me to comment on, on why that they embraced, you know, that type of music that they did. But I guess like some of the more melodic stuff um, seems to really be popular there where we're here metal mm. maybe went like a harder way or, or some of the heavier bands oh god i know yeah jesus in ireland like every single band who plays is an extreme metal band like there's absolutely nothing melodic no melodic heavy metal gigs to go to and it's well it's awful for somebody like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so i think in japan they really appreciate it but you know it goes back to narita where, where you know even after their first album that they were getting traction in, in japan for for whatever reason there's probably a film to be made just about that i think to explore like why the japanese embraced mm. riot and other bands of that nature you know yeah sure so let's talk a little bit about the band like so i'm, I'm conscious that people listening to this might not even know the band like we discussed earlier on um but riot kind of so they're calling themselves riot five now for those who are uninitiated and that is basically because the singer that they currently have now uh, todd michael hall is the fifth official singer of riot um who actually released albums with them etc but prior to that they had guy speranza they had rhett forrester they had tony moore they had mike DeMeo for a long time and actually he was Kind of, I think I was jokingly saying it to you, but it's, it's actually true. Like, he was the Tony Martin, I think, of, of Riot. He was there for loads of albums. Six albums. Uh, in, the, in, in the most difficult time, presumably, anyway, for the band. And then they went back to Tony Moore. He was on um, he was on Thundersteel. And then, well, Mark Reale died. And then they kind of reformed as Riot 5 with a new singer. So there's a lot going on there. And it's almost impossible to really condense that into a, <laughs> a couple of minutes of... of um, of chat but like talk talk me through kind of maybe the history of the band you don't need to hit on everything but like uh maybe just for the uninitiated for the listener the history of the band well they they started in uh brooklyn new york in the early 70s um and they were sort of uh like a proto metal rock and roll band uh, i you know i i hate putting like labels on it but you know they were doing sort and that's actually, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but that's actually one thing that comes up again and again in the documentary and generally just talking to people about the band. It's that they're very difficult to pin down because of those very distinct eras. It's almost, you can't really say that they're a heavy metal band, but they're not like a rock band, you know, like uh, going back to Deep Purple again. But like, you know, if you were describing what Deep Purple are to somebody, you'd be like, they're a rock band, maybe a hard rock band. But Riot have been all over the map. Yeah, the... Their early stuff, I think, uh, you know, you can describe as high energy rock and roll, and uh, that that's how Rick mm. describes it, um, and I think that's pretty appropriate. And they, you know, and and when Guy Speranza, their first singer, left after Fire Down Under, which is considered their uh, classic album, one 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 of the masterpieces, yeah. you know, one of the best albums of, of that time period. And it's kind of the iconic image you would associate with them, I think, yeah. is that image from the 
the front cover, which actually we should need to touch on the mascot yeah. as well. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get to that in your own time. <laughs> well, I guess this could be a good good time because the, the mascot was created okay. during that first album. Um, I mean, I mean, Peter tells it well in the film, but essentially it it was because to be a political statement that would attract attention because there at the time there was a movement of uh, where where Canadian I guess in Canada they were clubbing baby seals for their for their furs uh, uh, and mm. there there were you know people who thought that was inhumane um, uh, and so that's where the idea for this seal figure came from where he was exacting his revenge on the human civilization in various mm. ways on, on those early album covers yeah um so he was like fuck off for kill, killing my species <laughs> i'm gonna fuck you guys up and the idea was that it would be a provocative <laughs> it was a provocative image but i i i don't think it provoked yeah. people to buy, you know, provoke people in a certain way, but it wasn't necessarily to like, oh, let me buy this album because it looks like whatever music is on here is cool, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's an odd choice for a mascot, I'll say. And actually, I think one of the, the people in that you interviewed, to keep it true, an American guy, uh, was like, if people come up to you, he was wearing the right T-shirt. Like, people come up to you and they like say, "What the hell is that?" Well, then you know they're a fucking poser. <laughs> <laughs> like, I thought that was very funny, but like, uh, it is still an unusual choice for a mascot. I think in that, like, seals are like, you know, it's no, it's no um, Eddie from Iron Maiden, or it's it's no Vic Rattlehead, or it's no Murray. I think from from Dio. It's like. It's just kind of odd. Um, I know that that's what makes makes them stand out as well. But like, I don't think you associate seals with heavy metal or heavy rock music. Yeah, well, th- th- this was purely a choice of the record management. Uh, the band didn't have a, from what I understand, the band didn't really have a say or know what was going to be in the album until it was sort of like already a done deal. Um, and, and that mm. was one of the problems that plagued Riot from from getting success that they just didn't have much control. Uh, in those early contracts that they signed uh, over what 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 went yeah on. And, and you hear this so often like with bands you just especially bands who came up in the 70s and early 80s you hear about this so often like no control no money the record company fucked them over <laughs> just you just it's like such a common story yeah this wasn't even the record company this was their you know their management that they that they had at yeah, the time. yeah. um but Okay, yeah, but so we were going through the history of the band. So Guy Speranza, first three albums, we were talking about the Fire Down Under album is kind of iconic and probably the best album of that era. But then they kind of shifted quite a lot and went to Rhett Forrester, who had quite a different voice to Guy Speranza. Yeah, well, they, uh, you know, Guy left like right when it seemed like they're about to break big, you know, but, you know, they'd been going at it for, for some years already, you know, since 1976, really. This was 81 when when guy left so i think there were there were various factors but you know the grind uh, and not getting the money and not seeing success or you know some people say fear of success you know whatever it was you know he he, he decided mm-hmm. that was it he's done um sort yeah. of like when they just had some significant momentum really going on and um they found another singer who had a different style. Uh, Very different. And they, yeah, that's whatever reason, that's the decision that was made. And um, also, you know, a great singer, but they had to adjust 
their music, the style of their music a bit to to match his singing style. Yeah, and it wasn't quite like um, I, I don't know ed- as edgy perhaps uh, uh, as what they were doing with Guy Speranza. Yeah, I'd say like Guy Speranza was like high pitched, close on a falsetto type of vocal, and then Rhett Forrester to me was more of a baritone, deeper kind of David Coverdale type of person. Uh, and they would go back there again to that kind of style. But uh, so Rhett Forrester gets fed up and leaves. Or is he kicked out? Actually, I can't remember the narrative now. Um, but, yeah. Well, according to what Don says in the film, he, you know, once they decided, I mean, they got let go from Capitol Records and their Born in America was put out on an indie label, I think called Quality. Mm. Um, so, so things were sort of like, you know, going, not going in the right direction. Going yeah. south. And when they wanted to go back to New York and sort of, take this thunder steel sound that they had developed with Narita, which was a band Mark's solo band, mm-hmm. which he initially wanted to call the Mark Reale project when he, you know, had broken up sort of, uh, taken a break from riot. Yeah. Um, born in America, riot that, uh, the sound that they were going for, which was more of a power metal speed metal sound was like, Rhett was just like, you know, this isn't my deal. You know, I'm more of a blue bluesy mm-hmm. sort of Southern rock kind of guy. And I'm not, you know, I'm not the guy you need for this. So I guess there wasn't that much incentive yeah. for him to like put himself in that situation since, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the moment, you know, they'd broken up, they tried to get back together they couldn't find a record deal at that point. Things were just like they weren't getting any traction. So he, I think, just did his own solo thing and was like, you know, yeah, there was no. It was just like, God bless you, but you know, like I'm not the right guy for like where you guys are going. Yeah, and not to really to be heard from again. Well, uh, certainly on a large stage, anything or anything like that. Um, but then, yeah, so we kind of had nothing for a few years, and then the, did the band exist? Didn't they exist? Uh, not really, I suppose. And then we had Thundersteel, which I know you said like Fire Down Under is kind of the iconic album or maybe the best album from the early days. But Thundersteel would be very much viewed as the c- classic Riot album, I'd say. Is that fair to say? Um, I guess it depends which circles you're talking about. People who are into power metal might might say that. But, you know, cl- classic, I guess. Uh, yeah. Fire Down Under. But Thundersteel certainly like this different incarnation of Riot with this more speed metal, power metal style i Mm. i think you know especially at that time that was something very uh unique and also progressive uh, and ahead of the game um which riot often were which may not have worked for them (laughs) either so i'd say maybe okay so let's say um fire down under was their master of reality if you're talking about black sabbath again and then uh, Thundersteel might be their heaven and hell where they got Ronnie James Dio in and they did a completely well not a completely but they did quite a different songwriting approach I'd say um, and had a different singer which had more vocal capabilities I'd say there's maybe a fair comparison in there somewhere yeah no it, it was it was definitely like a different band you know and probably Mark you know in retrospect should have should have maybe gone with a different name at that time mm. um it might have even freed them from all those contracts, but I, I guess he felt like he had put so much into the brand and he didn't have enough uh, 
um, exposure on his own to make it like the Mark Reale project or something like this, where he didn't want to lose what he had built over the years. But, you know, probably at that point, it would have made s- some sense to call it some something else. Yeah. Because now it all falls under this umbrella of Riot and, and you know, there there's <laughs> like some confusion or, uh, you know, people start saying, well, who's the real Riot? What's the best Riot? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, it, that, that album certainly, um, especially in Europe where power metal and South America where power metal is more popular. I think, generally speaking, in the metal communities, um, is considered a masterpiece album. Yes. Uh, so then, so we have Red Forrester for a couple of albums. He's there for uh, Restless Breed, Born in America. There's a gap. We got Tony Moore, completely different vocalist. He stays for two albums. Uh, they release uh, Thundersteel, and uh, you're going to remind me now what the name of the next one is. Uh, Privilege of Power. Yes, in 1990. Uh, and then the kind of, there's another shift. So what happened with Tony Moore? So so they were kind of making some traction with Thundersteel. As you said, Like it was kind of gaining them maybe a new audience, let's say. Different type of audience, power metal. But then t- uh, Tony Moore disappears after two albums then as well. Tony Moore and, and, and Donnie Van Stavre. And I th- Donnie left first. Um but then Tony left shortly after that, and it, it, you know, I, th- I think it was it, it was about the money. You know, they had done these like huge tours in Japan, you know, to like a re- I guess arena shows, and made a lot of money, but weren't seeing any of it because the management took it, saying like, "Well, you owe us for things that we had put money into yes. in the past." The old, the old classic. Uh, <laughs> Uh, do you know what I always wonder with this right this is kind of a side point but you know like you'd be listening to maybe a podcast or you'd be reading a book about bands let's say in the 70s and 80s and they'd be like we weren't getting paid we had no money I I often wonder to myself but you must have had some money to subsist on so I often wonder like are they on a kind of a small salary during this time but they're just not getting any royalties or I don't know if that came up in any of your discussions with people specifically but I've often that thought has crossed my mind a lot yeah I because you must have to subsist I don't on think something they have like, a, you have to pay your rent you know you have to feed yourself well maybe they weren't able to do that which is why so many guys left I mean I, I don't think they were getting like some sort of salary or anything like that I think they were just getting like you know a check cut here and there you know like uh, after after a tour or, or or whatever, you know, apparently none of them ever saw any money from Thundersteel. Like, they had to buy guitars, amps. They had to book rehearsal studios. As I said, they had to feed themselves. Presumably they all had cars, <clears throat> possibly houses. Maybe they were renting. Like that all has to come from somewhere. And, you know, you hear this kind of lion trotted out again and again. Oh, there was no money. We weren't getting paid. We didn't get any money. It was like, but you must have. I don't know. I, you know, I can't really comment on that because I wasn't there. I wasn't. So, you, you know, you'd have. No, it's, it's more of a, it's more of a um, rhetorical question, I think, really, or rhetorical comment or whatever. But it's like. Yeah, I, I don't know. But, you know, in the Fight or Fall documentary, I mean, they go into that pretty, pretty deep that like people got to eat, people got to pay rent. And that wasn't happening. And that's why they had to leave. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. Sorry, yeah, side point anyway, as I said. So, uh, Tony Moore packs up his things and leaves. Uh, and then Mike DeMeo is there for six albums, as we mentioned earlier, which is kind of like the... Uh 
fallow period, I suppose, in terms of popularity, probably. But in terms of creativity and writing good songs, like that Inish Moore album uh, is fantastic and, and probably one of their best. I haven't listened to every Riot album, but I've listened to a lot of them. And like they really were kind of coming up with the goods still. And I think it's one of the points that um, Mike Flint's hammers home in the documentary is that Mark Reale was always about the songs and, you know, he could he was focused on writing a good song. And that was like a song with a, a chorus, a pre-chorus, a bridge. Um, and even during that time period with Mike DeMeo, um, they still came up with the goods. Yeah, I mean, I would say that was a very um, a prolific uh, and creative time for Mark because he had that stability of working with Mike DeMeo, uh, which he really enjoyed, you know, like, like Mark always liked that bluesier side as well. Um, and mm. it was, I thought, I- and sorry, just, just to mention, sorry, he was a very different type of singer again from the likes of Tony Moore. So he was more of a, like a, a deeper voiced kind of maybe more baritone type of singer. Um, so different from Guy Sprans and different from Tony Moore. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely had, had, you know, fit more like the, the David Coverdale. He, I mean, even compares himself he, and mentions himself that, you know, that was sort of like his style of, of vocals. He, he didn't really mm. come from a metal background. Um, but Mark really enjoyed working with him. Obviously that's why he, he kept, he made six albums together. Um, it, it should also be noted that Bobby Erzombek, who was on the Thunder Steel and Privilege of Power, he was the drummer also played on three albums during the Mike DeMeo era. The first two, Nightbreaker and Brethren of the Longhouse. And uh, no, he, he wasn't on Brethren of the Longhouse, sorry. And then uh, Inishmore and Sons of Society. Um, yeah. So, yeah, like, during that time, they weren't very playing big shows and, and weren't getting their records really even released in America. Uh, large yeah <laughs> yeah disaster <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it, it was finally on Inishmore was the first album where they broke off they broke away from their management that they had had since mm. 1975 or whenever they signed those contracts were you know like that was the first time where uh they they really were working with a new management in a, different circumstances Then at a certain point after kind of the Mike DeMeo era, things quietened down again for a bit. And all of a sudden, then we kind of had the reunion of the Thundersteel lineup and Tony Moore was back. Uh, Mike Flintz, who I know was only a touring member, uh, Don Van Steveren came back during around that time as well. Um, do you think that kind of had, you know, what happened to Mike or Mark Rialli and that happened? Do you think we'd still have that lineup today? Do you think that would have persevered? Based on having kind of known these people now for the last few months, do you think it would have persevered? I think so, because there was, um, from what I'm aware of, that there was a lot of interest in that lineup. They were supposed to go on tour with Hammerfall mm. at the time. You know, like the, there was just like a lot of excitement around that lineup reuniting, uh, especially here in Europe, it seems like. So I think think they would have gained some new traction that would have brought them to a different level than they had been playing you know in the last 10 15 years like which was a bad time for metal to begin with but um you know i i think sure they would they would have probably stuck around because there would have been money and interests <laughs> yeah. you know 
it's a it's a damn shame yeah. um obviously it's kind of very sad what happened to him uh so he was sick for a lot of his life with crohn's disease or did he have it from birth even i think uh i think that is something either he had but from birth or from when when he was very young yeah uh, i i don't know i don't know for sure but i know he you know and anyone who knows mark has mentioned that he's had it all you know all his life pretty much yeah and then by the time they actually got to play any gigs after releasing Immortal Soul, uh, he had died and they had to play gigs without him, basically. Uh, they did it, I think it was the 70,000 Tons of Metal and a couple of other shows there in 2012, January 2012, without him. Yeah, I know they 7,000 Tons of Metal is when they found out he had passed. He had been in the hospital when they got in the boat and they found out, I guess, you know, right before they were going to play that he had passed away. And uh, there was footage, some you know, that was filmed at that time, and and that's in the in the documentary as well, which you know was pretty pretty emotional. Um, and yeah, they played a show, BB Kings, and a couple other shows uh, after he had passed that they had already, I guess, had lined up, but you know, some bigger tours and things like that. Just they obviously had canceled. And then um, we get to where we are now, pretty much, which is Riot Five. Uh, we mentioned earlier Todd Michael Hall is now the current singer. You've got Mike Flintz and Don Van Stavern from the Thundersteel era. Um, and they're kind of a going concern now really since 2014 when they released Armor of Light. Or was that the first album back? I think it was. Uh, no, Unleash the Fire was the first. Sorry, Unleash the Fire. Apologies. Yeah. And then Armor of Light uh, four years later. Um, but yeah, so, so Riot 5 is essentially what they're what basically how they kind of describe it is like they're they're paying tribute to mark reali um they're continuing the band because they got his father's blessing and well i mean who knows how long this will last but it's been going for uh, close to 10 years now yeah i mean the, you know the albums they've done as riot five i think are phenomenal uh i think they take that power metal sound that was forged on thundersteel and they they sort of like keep evolving it for the modern day um, I mean, Todd Michael Hall is just a fantastic vocalist. I mean, he is just unbelievable. Like he he can just, you know, hit these notes and it just seems effortless and it's so clean and he can sing the whole, all the different singers. Uh, I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, he, he I, I think is probably the most versatile vocalist that they've had for sure. I completely agree with you. And I think I said that in one of the clips that you included in one of the, one of the episodes, uh, I think he's one of the best live singers I've ever seen. Um, and I include like Ronnie James Dio and Bruce Dickinson in that conversation. Um, and I think he can absolutely nail all the different singers. And he actually kind of reminds me, I don't know if you were following along with Rainbow in recent years, but um, they did a bit of a reunion like with Richie Blackmore and, and everything. And uh, they got a new singer called Ronnie Romero. But they were singing Deep Purple songs and Rainbow songs. And he could nail all of the singers' voices. And I think Todd Michael Hall is kind of the same he just he can nail every single era uh, but also has his own voice as well which is just phenomenal I, I agree absolutely and and you know like and mike flint's uh is a very underrated guitar player i mean he is unbelievable on the guitar you know like like he is just like one of the best i think out there and also you know like there are many musicians but you know just doesn't quite get like the credit for for you know the level that he's playing on and, and you know mark reality didn't either 
Yeah, but that's kind of the thing, I suppose, about underground heavy metal or underground hard rock. It's that the likes of Keep It True Festival, you know, the people there appreciate this music, but to the general public, it's probably kind of unknown. And unfortunately, it will probably remain unknown as well now at this point. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say, you know. I mean, they they have a new album coming out, which um, I haven't heard, but I think could launch them. into a another realm of exposure to expand their audience perhaps you know the film maybe could also somehow add to that i mean uh, you know one of the issues with the film is that i don't have a, a distributor for it um or some sort of you know promotional uh budget to market it or, or anything like that so it's pretty much grassroots um i mean trying to do like the traditional you know, find a distributor, film festival route, I think uh, would not make sense because of all the potential copyright issues with licensing the music and things like that. So, you know, my intention was never to make any money off of it, but to just sort of put it out there for the public and and hope that, you know, it would gain some attraction because you know, the people who love Riot are really quite passionate about the band. And, and first and foremost, this is a, a film for them. I would say, uh, you know, that is the audience I had in mind, people who really want to dig into the band. I'm not trying to, like, convince people uh, who have a a short attention span to, like, look at the band. It's not designed for that. It's more like a research project for people who are interested in researching this particular area, you know? (laughs) Mm. Uh, yeah, and this like I, I absolutely love this type of stuff. Um, it plays into exactly kind of the way I would approach uh, music, bands, listening to bands. I, I want to know everything about them. And I think probably the listeners of Feckin' Metal are, are quite similar to me, um, especially the ones who've kind of stuck on over the years. So I hope this can in some way uh, increase the 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 I don't know the word of mouth or whatever about your upcoming documentary. Uh, if you were gonna sell it in an elevator pitch, I'm sure this term is probably familiar to you because you studied film. Uh, what's the elevator pitch for Immortal Soul, the documentary? Oh yeah, the elevator pitch. Um, well, this is a a band that should have been as big as Van Halen from, but uh, but is from New York City, and. Uh, you know, for many reasons, it didn't work out for them, but they persevered on making incredible music and in circumstances that were, you know, difficult and, uh, conti- you know, their legacy continues on today. Um, and every, you know, iteration of them just has phenomenal songs. You know, every album has some like just really amazing, you know, melodic heavy metal rock and roll songs brilliant okay so um i think that's kind of brought us up to the present day so we've got todd michael hall now who's the singer who's kind of considerably or not considerably he's a good bit younger though than um the other members i think Uh, he looks extremely young actually but he's actually on the sly in his 50s but but yeah hopefully they they can continue uh, for another good few years with him you've got rob halford out there who's 72 and he's still doing it so hopefully riot have uh quite a few years left in them well you know i think it's the you know the ideal thing for them would be to be able to sort of quit their day jobs and actually be able to focus and ride full time i mean everyone is still doing you know something else to pay the rent and i know that they're juggling 
you know, doing that with trying to, you know, being able to go on tour uh, and, and play music, which often, you know, if they come back with some bucks in their pocket after that, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's enough for a little bit, but it's, you know, like everyone's still got their other gigs going on. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that gets more difficult as you get older. Uh, to, of course. To do, obviously. Um, you know, Mike Flint has a guitar school. And so every time mm, he goes okay. away, he's got to juggle his students and, and things like that. Um, so we, we'll see. You know, I, I hope that they do, you know, with the new record label, the new album, and uh, seemingly, you know, more attention now than they have been getting maybe, you know, since the early 80s, that uh, yeah. they're on that trajectory to get some momentum and maybe get up to the next level. Uh, so, finally... I'd like to ask you, you've done this now. Tell people about where they can watch it, when it's out, and how they can get in touch with you, I suppose. If you, if you want people to get in touch with you, maybe you don't. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, well, it, it will be premiering uh, on my NYC Rocks TV YouTube channel. Um, I have a website, www.nycrocks.tv, uh, which has more information. Uh, about, you know, it has a link to the YouTube channel. It has my email uh, and it has the dates of the premiere. So it'll be, uh, there's four chapters. Um, Chapter one, Keeping It True, will premiere the first Saturday in January, eight o'clock PM uh, Berlin, German time, two o'clock, that's two o'clock New York time. I guess that's seven o'clock mm-hmm. in Ireland at that time. <laughs> it is, yeah. You've got all the time zones right there. Uh, and don't even get me started on what it is in Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> so so the idea, the idea is to have like a live a premiere and then maybe a live chat after the premiere. Um and where's that gonna take place? On, it would be on, on the YouTube channel, on the NYC Rocks TV YouTube channel. Brilliant. Uh, you, you know, initially I, I thought it might be cool to get some of the guys on, but it's just, there's too many different personalities and things for me to juggle at. You know, like I just don't have uh, sort of the bandwidth to put that all together. But, um, you know, so at least I'll try to make myself available for some comments and, and we'll see. Maybe we will be able to get someone else on. Um, but Very you, good. I, do you know what? Of all of the people you've spoken to, I'd love to hear from Mike Flintz at that. Uh, if he's available, that would be great to be able to interact with him a bit, I think. Well, Mike Flintz is going to be on a show called the New York Hardcore Chronicles, um, which is uh, a show that has Drew Stone, uh, who has made several films, uh, including about the hardcore scene in, in New York and Boston. And uh, it's it's he developed he started it during covid and it's got he's had a lot of metal bands on there as well personalities like the guys from anthrax overkill john zazula who founded megaforce records um so he's got a pretty wide audience there and and mike uh, flints will be on the show in in the middle of january sort of in the middle of our release um the the idea of the release is is doing it once a week for the month of january you know, before the new Riot album comes out, but mm. also sort of like having this um, traditional setup where, 
you know, you, uh, something would be released, then there'd be like a week where people could talk about it, and then the next episode happens. So ra rather than this, like you all the episodes at once, and, and that's how I did my web series is to make it a thing people can talk about it. Maybe people will sh hopefully share it because it's cool and and they're excited about it, and to you know build up a little momentum that way. Yeah. Absolutely, I, I like that approach. Like we're we're spoiled rotten these days. We get everything all at once, and uh, you know we kind of expect that then as well. But the kind of tapered, you know, uh, patient, I suppose, release uh, approach that you've gone with is actually I, I quite like that. So look, I wish you all the best with it. Um, I will certainly share it myself. I hope this podcast goes some way towards promoting it as well. Uh, final final question: You've done this documentary now. It's in the can. Um, it's taken up a year of your life, but it sounds like it was a complete passion project. Are you going to do anything else like this in future? Or have you even thought about that? Um, well, one, one thing I've, I've thought about is just, you know, is uh, still working with the riot. How I have these four chapters focusing on four different eras, but, um, you know, maybe taking something from that and creating a standalone piece that would focus on basically the riot five version of the band calling it the riot five chapters. Uh, so it would be sort of like an hour and a half that takes the story from these four films and makes it into one film that would focus on the current version of the band. Um, sort of like focusing on like the Narita, you know, Don Van Stavern and Mark Real's story into the Thundersteel and then into the uh, Thundersteel reunion and making that a cohesive piece. So there is that idea. And maybe that's something that maybe I could uh, find a different home for perhaps than just online. Maybe it'd be easier to get the rights to those, just those materials because it's, you know, the current guys and, and things like that. Very good. And any other bands? I know I said final, final question, but I'm a liar. Uh, any other bands other than Riot that have um, piqued your interest enough to make you want to make a documentary about them? Well, ma making a documentary, <laughs> you know, like the there was a number. It, it's a tough thing, like obviously to do for for no money and as a passion project, especially as you get older mm -hmm. and you have a family. Um, you know, this was something that I had the time for, and the, there was archival materials there and. You know, I didn't need to pay a lot of out of pocket to travel around and and follow someone mm. around. Um, I, I I would say that there's definitely like in the past I had thought about making a documentary on this band Huntress. I don't know if you're familiar okay. with, with them. But no, I'm not. They were um, a band that came around around 2010. Um, that were just a phenomenal metal band. Uh, with this amazing, super hot female singer um uh, and she unfortunately killed herself in 2018 uh, what, what um what was her name again jill can, can we go to jay jill janice yeah yes yeah, yeah i did hear about that yeah yeah I did indeed and it was only because of that news actually i heard about it but yeah yeah I so did all right yeah that that would be another story i think that that would be worth telling because i mean it's She's an interesting personality. Their music is phenomenal. Not that many people know about them. And uh, unfortunately, mm. she's not around. And I, I feel she, she, you know, should be remembered in, in the sphere of metal. They were they were quite um, a favorite of mine mu musically. Um, um, but certainly, the, you know, there's other bands that have grabbed my ear. You know, 
that's seeing it keep it true like some of these newer bands coming up and messiah force messiah force is one of them although they're <laughs> i fell they're, asleep for they're an older <laughs> band <laughs> well i i did uh include them in the chapter one keep it true part uh, of the document mm. of the riot documentary and that that story happens frequently keep it true and i think uh, mm. it would be interesting to do that kind of thing where you're documenting these bands who were you know together in the 80s or, or whenever it was ha- had some cult success perhaps and then just mm-hmm. basically retired and then yeah and then come together and go play yeah. this show where like people you know it's like the searching for sugar man story over and over and it's amazing human experience i think like a human emotion mm. to like document this sort of joy like like you saw that with wizard at this last year's mm. uh, the most they recent the actually. most recent yeah. keep it true but you know I, I saw that like their family was standing there next to me in the front you know his daughter and yeah and they were yeah. just so happy and you could see like like you know, it means so much for them to be playing these shows and like to document mm. that, like to do interviews with them around that. I mean, it's sort of like reality TV that's real and what it, you know, like like these, yes. these genuine yeah. moments of yeah. of just like joy of like the human experience and in music. That that I think would be interesting. It's happened so many times as well, like Sirathungal, Heavy Load, um, Glacier. It's a several bands that I've interviewed actually. Um, just yeah, reforming for Keep It True or or a similar festival. Like um. right. Anyway, look, um, I you know I've taken up a lot of your time, uh, so I do appreciate you coming on and metal it's been great to talk about this documentary really looking forward to it coming out obviously going to watch it again start to finish because i've seen it out of sequence uh, (laughs) with the various parts you've been sending me but i wish you the absolute best of luck with it and i hope it uh, does extremely well and uh, it's been a pleasure to chat to you so thank you very much uh thanks for having me thanks for like uh all you do and putting your time into investigating these deep dives off the radar bands and and things like that it's it's a uh, really cool and it's always um you know a lot of respect to anyone who's doing more than just bitching about how things aren't cool in the world you know <laughs> <laughs> all right brilliant thanks very much damien best of luck as i said and uh yeah i'll be chatting to you soon i'm sure and i i hope uh your release goes extremely well in january and yeah all the luck in the world thanks man All right, so that was Damien Collodi there talking about his upcoming Riot documentary, Immortal Soul, which is coming your way in January. So that's going to be released one episode per week, starting every Saturday in January from the 6th January right through until the 27th. As I said at the start of the episode, I'll give you further updates about that as we go. And I'm going to include a piece of audio that we recorded after the interview had finished, but it was actually a great conversation. So I'll include that in the upcoming episode of Feckin' Metal. It feels odd talking about the band Riot when Dublin City and Thursday of this week was an actual riot with burning buses, burning cars, um, burning trams and severe unrest across the city. I was supposed to be going to a gig on Friday, Michael Schenker and Night Demon in the Academy and that's been postponed to tonight. Uh, That unrest seems to have stopped for now so if you'll excuse me I'm going to make my way into Dublin city centre to go to that gig tonight and I'm going to leave you with this song which is one of my favourites from Thunder Steel and it's called Johnny's Back 
and I'll be back soon with an interview with two members of Sirith Ungle that's Tim Baker and Rob Garvin that's the other episode I have in the can that's coming your way very shortly keep an ear out for that an eye out whatever kind of fucking thing you want to keep out for it keep it out this is Johnny's back that was Damien Collodi talking about his upcoming documentary Immortal Soul my name's Fergal Trainer, and I'll see you next time